anyone. You know, I, I mentioned when I was first here in October that I'm a big fan of the satire website, uh, Babylon B. And they put out a, an article, Playing Christmas Music Before Thanksgiving, Now a Federal Crime. Uh, <laughs> and I have very much uh, empathized with that sentiment. Um, and it's not because I don't like Christmas music. It's not because I don't like the season. It's not because um, I'm a Grinch or a Scrooge in any sense of the word. Uh, it's because I really, really like Thanksgiving. And I think that uh, it's, in a way, the least commercialized uh, celebration holiday that we have in our culture. And it's centered upon a single centerpiece of gratitude, which is great, and we talked about that last week. But uh, God seems to have a sense of humor. You know, I, I try to prevent my wife and everyone that I am around from playing Christmas music beforehand, yet last Christmas, Zoe, my daughter, who's not here, she family's not feeling well, so y'all can pray for them, uh, she decided that Joy to the World was her favorite song last Christmas. And so literally every time I put her to sleep, which is, you know, over 200, probably close to 300 times since last Christmas, she's asked me to sing Joy to the World. So I've literally sang Joy to the World every day that I put her to sleep since last Christmas. So God has a sense of humor. Um, so before we get into the text, um, I do want to talk a little bit about this um, we're not required as Christians to celebrate any holiday. Have you ever thought about that? Under the New Covenant, there is no mandate to celebrate any specific calendar. Christmas isn't a biblical, quote-unquote, holiday. Like We don't have a passage where we go to where it says, and you shall, on the 25th of December, you know, have presents. Uh, we don't have that. But we do get to... Um, we get to celebrate and where we have been given such a great gospel. As we talked about last week, Christians ought to be meeting and celebrating regularly, informally and formally, because of the victory of God in Christ and that his victory has been made ours. So we're going to be uh, beginning today a study of the epistle to the Hebrews. So I want to read the first four verses of the first chapter right now. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as his name, as the name he has received is more excellent than theirs. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So, a few things before we begin. This is going to be a long study. I don't know how long it's going to take. But by conviction, I believe it is better to go as slow as necessary through individual books of the Bible for the health of the church. And there are several reasons for that. One is, is that it forces me to speak on things that I otherwise wouldn't want to or think to talk about. If it's just things I think of or things I feel led to teach on, it's going to be a lot of things that make up my personality or way of seeing the world. But if I force myself to go through books of the Bible, then I'm teaching on what God has revealed to his people by the Spirit. And also it's word-centric. Does that make sense? That it, it, it features the word of God itself. It's not my cleverness or smarts. It is the Bible that is driving what we're doing or what we're thinking about. Further, there's the issue of God's glory. The more creative and smart we seem to ourselves in the watching world, the less Christ and his word receive the credit for real life change. And that's significant. So this doesn't mean that other books and studies are bad. It's just that in all of life, especially the life of the church, we must be obviously and intentionally word-centric. Bible-centered. In selecting this text or this book, I also wanted the first several sermons to nicely overlay the Christmas season. So I wanted the first verses of whatever book we decided to go through first to fit well with this time where we as a culture, we as a church, set aside to celebrate the first coming of our Lord. Now, this text is not, what I just read, it's not about Christ's first coming, necessarily. You, could, you couldn't look at this text and say, this is about the first coming of Jesus. So I don't want to do violence to the text and subject it to Christmas themes. However, it is about Christ, and more than just about Christ, it's about his superiority and the superiority of the new covenant. Let me read it again. It's short. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. What an amazing text. Before we move forward, trying to dissect these phrases, we're, we're really going to only get through the first one and a half verses here today, Lord willing. But before we try to dissect these phrases and these statements, it's fitting to make sure that your heart is in the right place 
to take stock of how your heart responds to these statements about Jesus. I just read some of the most exalted Christology that exists in Scripture and anywhere else. How did your heart respond? Did you feel anything? Did it move you at all? Many of us can find ourselves in the place where the author of Hebrews writes to them and says, you have become dull of hearing. Whether that's distractions or sins, or just distancing ourselves from the truth about God, whatever it is, we can get to a place where we can read something this powerful and this Christ-exalting and feel nothing. This is God the Spirit speaking through the writer about how God has spoken his final definitive word in his son. These are powerful statements. If you haven't, if that doesn't move you at all, if your spirit is not evoked at all, then begin praying right now, even as I'm speaking, that the Lord would wake you up, that he would remove that dullness from your hearing so that you might respond at the deepest level to these truths about his son. And I'm not trying to say that feelings are the end-all, be-all, right? That's not, Christianity is not about emotions, right? But what we know or what we believe ought to result in the heart being warmed or moved to respond in the appropriate ways. The affections of your heart tell what you really believe or what you treasure, Let me read it one more time before we go into a summary. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews is concerned for the perseverance of the churches he is writing to. So I just want to show you sort of his main gist in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, speaking of the old covenant, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the context here most likely is a very persecuted church. It's likely the persecution that broke out under Nero after the burning of Rome that the author is writing this letter to those Christians who are experiencing that persecution. We don't know for sure because the author doesn't identify himself and he doesn't identify his intended recipients. But this is what's most likely based on what we know from the clues. 
So you have to imagine that it was very unpopular to be a Christian and to call Christ your Lord. And you have to imagine or put yourself in put yourselves in their shoes and think of your houses being plundered, you and your families being imprisoned and being exiled from Rome and possibly even being put to death because of just being a Christian, being associated with the name of Christ. And the author was very concerned, obviously for their situation and their plight, but more than the difficulties and the sufferings they were enduring, he was concerned for their perseverance. That even in the midst of such suffering, the reason he writes to them is to ensure that they have a sure foundation so that they do not abandon the Lord. That they don't stop associating themselves with Christ. He also writes to them to continue the fight of preserving orthodoxy, a right belief about God. So this theme of persevering and holding fast is found throughout the book. So our challenges today look a little bit different. Most of us, if not all of us, have never been forced to leave our homes because of being a Christian. None of us have most likely suffered torture or exile or things being stolen from you because you're a Christian, maybe. Maybe a few of us have had some of those, but most of us know. But the call to persevere and continue to hold fast to the truth of Christ still is preeminently important. The methods of the enemy have changed, at least for us here in this nation. It is still difficult. There are still perils that abound in preventing us from persevering to the end. And most of them are our comforts and the distractions, like I was speaking of earlier. So the cause or, you know, what what will cause us or enable us to persevere and cling to Christ or hold fast to Christ unwaveringly is to see him for who he truly is. This is the author of Hebrews assumption, his uh, assertion. In order to help this suffering church, this group of churches, most likely, who are enduring great persecution and being ostracized because of being Christians, to help them endure, to help them persevere to the end, he helps them see who Jesus really is. He doesn't give them a method or a, uh, a new uh, philosophy of ministry, a new strategy, or give them five steps to you know, how to bear up under suffering. He wants them to see who Jesus is. He uses some of the most polished language found in the New Testament to give them as exalted a view of Jesus as possible. Realize that this is the key issue in your life. One, do you see him? And two, do you delight in him? That's the most fundamental issue in your life. 
regardless of what's going on, regardless of what you've been through, how old you are, anything. Do you see him? Do you delight in him? So this also shows us how to endure oppression from our fellow man. This is from 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So in the same way that I'm appealing to you to look closely at your heart and see if you truly delight in him, I'm also asking you to look at your witness. Our witness is offensive because of the claims about who Jesus is and what he has done. The same offense that existed in the first century for those believers and why the culture did not accept them is the same reason that our message today is offensive. We often unnecessarily add to that. But the truth is, this real Jesus, the one who's really there, is offensive. The Bible's claims about him are offensive. The culture doesn't want the real Jesus. They want a domesticated version of him. I mean, we'll take a domesticated version of him, you know, one who's very weak and innocent in a manger, you know, with you know, the shepherds. You know, we'll, we'll celebrate Easter as long as there's a bunny and candy, you know. But we don't, the culture doesn't want the real Jesus. And that's, that is the essence of why our message cannot be received by the world. This Jesus... The real Jesus is the one who will sustain you in suffering. And that joy-filled vision of him is what will help you persevere to the end. So let me just give you a summary of what the author's claims in these first four verses are. His first claim is that Jesus is superior to all the Old Testament prophets individually and in totality. Second, he claims that Jesus is the final and definitive revelation of God. He also claims that Jesus is the Son of God. Also, Jesus is the heir of all things that exist, meaning he will inherit all things that exist meaning you and me too. He's the heir of all things, not just stuff out there in the world, but you and me too. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. So he, the claim of the author here, is this Jesus, the real Jesus, has always existed. And he is before all things, as Paul says in Colossians. 
Through him, God created all things. Jesus is also the highest expression of the glory of God. Jesus is the perfect and complete expression of the nature and character of God. Jesus sustains the existence of all things that exist by the word of his power. That his very thoughts, his very will sustains the existence of all things down to the very electrons, protons, and neutrons in their orbits. Jesus' words have universal and ultimate power. There is nothing that's not under his control and domain. Jesus made final and definitive purification for sins. Jesus' death, which is implied in these verses, is the means through which he made purifications for sins. Jesus is alive after having been dead. It's implied here, right? Making purifications for sins implied as his cross, his death, and he now sits at the right hand of God. It's implied that he is now alive after having been dead. The work of purification is done. The altar is closed because of the work of Jesus. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, majesty and rules God's universe. Jesus is superior superior to all other heavenly beings. And Jesus has the most excellent name. This is the Jesus we worship. This Jesus is the worth is the one worth living a life of holiness for. Not a small, weak, domesticated Jesus. This Jesus, the real Jesus, the one who rules now, the one who is the heir of all things. This Jesus is the one we proclaim. This Jesus is the one who contends for us. He is our champion. This Jesus is the one who took on flesh and tasted death for us. This Jesus is the one who who is one day returning. We spoke about this in Sunday school. We can wait expectantly for his return. This Jesus, this one who rules and reigns today in power. So out with all of the weak and domesticated Small Christs. May your soul only rest and trust and delight in this Jesus. And this is how Christian meditation is so different than anything we see in other Eastern religions. As a Christian, you're supposed to fill your mind with thoughts of God. Fill your mind with the truth about Jesus. And through that, and thinking on those things over and over and over, you are changed. This is how we mature 
in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as you think on Christ, when you read passages like this, when you hear the truth about who Jesus is, fill your mind with those things. That is how you are to mature in Christ. It's not by any kind of program or white-knuckling morality. It's by looking to Christ and letting that vision of Him transform your hearts. So I can go back to the question I asked at the beginning. Does that move you at all? When I said all those things about our Lord and understand it's the morning and it's cold. But did that stir anything in your heart at all? And if it doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're not a believer. It just means that you might, as many of us have been at times, dull hearing. So my prayer through this entire study, the theme of the book of the letter to the Hebrews is Christ is better or more excellent than. And he goes through example after example after example. My prayer for you and for myself is that through this entire study, we would be stirred, that our affections would be ignited for the true Jesus and our lives would be changed together. So let's look uh, at a few, uh, the first verse and a half here. He begins with this phrase, long ago. He's obviously referencing the Old Testament. But there's this sense of longing. Can, Can you hear it in his statement, long ago? Think of being a Jew a Hebrew waiting for God's redemption. Think of Simeon at the temple when Mary brought Jesus to the temple who was waiting for the revealing of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The people were waiting and they had waited for a long time. So this this phrase long ago carries that sense. You can go all the way back to Abraham and before thousands of years they had waited for the deliverer, for the suffering servant, for the one who had crushed the head of the serpent, waiting, waiting, waiting for the heir of David's throne. All of these promises culminating in this grand hope that God would send a Messiah, an anointed one, someone who would come and right all wrongs. Long ago, all of this began. And for 400 years... There was silence. No prophet, no word, nothing. And they waited. So this statement is meant to create a contrast between the time before Christ and the time after Christ. Things are different now. It was a long time in waiting where they got piece after piece after piece trying to figure out exactly who this one would be. Not even the prophets understood it fully. Long ago. Took a long time, but things are different now. 
Because Christ has come, things are better. It's not that the prophets were bad. It's that Christ and what he has done and what he has brought has fulfilled our waiting. Then he says, at many times and in many ways. Long ago, at many times and in many ways. So this phrase carries a sense of diversity of revelation. You can just think about the Old Testament. God communicated to his people in a multitude of different ways through the prophets. Spoke through a bush, on a mountain, in a cloud, through the fire, a still small voice, prophetic theatrics of all time, uh, all kinds. You can think of Ezekiel, those of you who know your Bibles well. Signs and wonders, a fleece, actual verbal communication, dreams, plagues, visions, theophanies, angels. And these are just those that I could think of off the top of my head sick yesterday while I was trying to put this together at a Starbucks. If I would pulled up a list, there would be more of the many different ways God communicated to his people by the prophets at many times and in many ways. A lot of what you would have known as an Old Testament believer about God and about what his plan was would have depended on where you lived and when you lived. You ever thought about that? I mean, most of them probably had some access to the Torah, but sometimes that wasn't even assured, right? Remember Josiah? When they finally cleaned out the temple, they found this book. They're like, hey, we, we found this book. It's all dusty and stuff. We're not sure what it is. And they read it, and it's the law. The Torah. So then, and then prophets came, right? You had judge after judge, and then you have prophet after prophet, and God revealed his will for the people at that time. So a lot of what you would have known about God and his will would have depended on where you were and when you were. But again, this is not, this is not to say that what God was doing was inferior or bad, it's not that, that God messed up in the Old Testament. It's just that in Christ, now things are more excellent or better. So long ago, at many times and in many ways, let's look at this phrase, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. We won't spend a ton of time here, but the significance of this and how firmly you believe it uh, will really set the course of your life that God did speak through the prophets. That what you hold in your hands is not a collection of religious sayings compiled by people, but that this is the word of God. That, for me, was the watershed event in my life when I realized, you know what? I can be confident in this. This is true. I may not understand it. I may have to give the next 20 years of my life trying to figure out exactly what it says and what it means, but I know that this is true. Did God really speak? Every religion tries to answer those questions. Is there a God, one, and two, has he spoken? And our claim is yes and yes, and this is it.
This is either the word of God or we really have nothing to talk about or meet about. We're just a club with nice practices and celebrations in a nice building, right? You need to settle that in your heart. Peter, uh, I won't turn there because um, I know I can tend to go long. I got uh, Last Sunday, we went an hour and I had five pages, and now I have six pages, so I'm trying to speed things up a little bit. So, <laughs> but Peter's, Peter is giving his, uh, his hearers an example of how great it was to witness Jesus. He, he was an eyewitness, right? He was there. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, glorified. And then he says, but we have something more sure, the prophetic word, which is confirmed for you. The author of Hebrews himself wasn't even an eyewitness. We know that from, uh, we'll get to that later, but he he says, it was declared to us by those who saw. So this for you ought to be the very word of God even more sure than being an eyewitness at the Mount of Transfiguration. One last observation on this phrase, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. The plurality and mortality of the prophets is contrasted with Jesus' singularity and his indestructible life. Right? You had many prophets and they all died. Their ministry was for a short time in the grand scheme of things. And God had to bring prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to his people and guide his people, tell them his way and his will. But Jesus came once for all time. And he lives forever. So that's the contrast. It's not that God, again, it's not that God had a bad way of doing things with the prophets. The prophets, as it were, prepared the way. But now Christ has come and things are better. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days. Just briefly, this statement is meant to emphasize that Jesus is the last. That's it. We're not waiting on a new word or revelation. Jesus is the end. There's no more. Sort of like, uh, you know, John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus when he was in prison. Hey, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus' answer is basically, I'm the one. So, Christian Do not wait or look for another. Jesus is God's final and definitive revelation to you. There's no new stage of God's redemptive plan. It's Christ. There is is not going to be a more clear revelation of God's character and will and plan than the person and work of Jesus. He's it. 
Even over 2,000 years ago, the author can still say, in these last days. Because there is a finality and completion in Jesus' work. So you have the many times in many ways versus these last days. And again, just referencing the return of Christ, we should feel the imminence of Jesus' return at all times, that this could be it. The next, as, as the, the Sunday School lesson said this morning, the next big thing on God's calendar is Christ's return. So, we come to the next phrase. He has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus came to do the Father's will, both in word and deed. This is from John 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning, when I am crucified, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So He does nothing on His own. Nothing He does, He does of His own accord. Nothing was Jesus' own plan that He did outside of God's authority. And then in John five thirty six, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works. I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So in everything he did and everything he said was exactly what the Father had given him to do. Jesus perfectly reveals God. Essentially, this is what that means. If you want to know anything about God that is able to be known, you look at Jesus. Do you understand how significant that is to your own spiritual walk? Your own seeking to grow in your knowledge and joy in the Lord? It's not a mystical relationship. It's not a secret hidden knowledge. It's Jesus Christ. And how he interacted with people and how he served people and how he even rebuked people in how he obeyed his father. That one is the perfect revelation of the character and nature of God. Jesus himself. We can get hung up on what God does not tell us, the hidden things. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Where do you want me to go? Who should I marry? And we can neglect the things that he has revealed, the things that belong to us. And just as a, a side note here, so, so he says, God has spoken to us by his son, right? Depending on what you watch on television or what you read in magazines or books, some people say, many people say in the, you know, Christian criticism field that, oh yeah, the, the idea of Jesus being God's son was a very late development. Uh, Christians didn't really believe that until maybe second or third century. The latest you can date the composition of Hebrews is 100 AD. 
and most likely because of what's happening for the people he's writing to, 65, 64 AD is likely. So this is within 30 years of Jesus' resurrection, and already you have the most exalted Christology you'll find anywhere, including present works, the Son of God. I want to focus, just before we go to application, on this little phrase, to us. God has spoken to us by his Son. As I said, the author of Hebrews wasn't there to be an eyewitness. He heard from someone else. He heard from one of the apostles, most likely. But God has spoken to us by his Son. God has spoken to you and to me by his Son. Do you feel personally targeted in the revelation of Jesus? What you hold in your hands, hopefully, or have on your device, is God's revelation of himself to you, to us, together. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago. Yes, other people wrote this down for record. But this is to you, as much as it was to them that long ago. So just a few points of application. First, I would just encourage you to read the Gospels, the faithful account of Jesus' life. But as we go through the study, I pray that you would also read the letter to the Hebrews. There are some really challenging passages in this book. And it's going to take some time, as I said. But if you're to learn from the study much at all, you'll need to read and reread this book. Second point of application is to re-examine the life of Jesus when you read the Gospels. We have so many preconceptions or narrow views of God. We're, we're affected by that domestication and weakening of Christ. So when you read the Gospels, if you set aside time to do that, let them speak for themselves on their own terms. Let the Jesus of the Bible jump off the page and not read your version of Christ into the text. Third point of application is to stop looking for other words or means of revelation. Jesus is the final word from God. What are we saying about Christ if we feel or think that he's not sufficient to guide us into all truth? We need something else. We need some secret or hidden wisdom or hidden way or a sign. Jesus isn't enough. God didn't do his work. He didn't reveal us everything we needed to know. Don't let your heart look for another. Also, I promised a set of sermons that would lead us appropriately into the Christmas season 
And I've preached, you know, over 30 minutes on this passage and haven't talked that much about Christmas, which is intentional. As Christians who believe and trust in this Jesus, the flavor and appearance of our celebration ought to look at least a little different from our non-Christian counterparts and from our nominal believing friends. If it's only the donkey, the stable, the inn, the shepherds, a Christmas carol, a Charlie Brown Christmas, the Grinch, Santa, Jimmy Stewart, Bing Crosby, Rudolph, Eggnog, Ham, and family, then we've lost the plot. We've really lost the plot. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. I love all those things. But if what we're celebrating is the first coming of the king who currently presently reigns, sitting at the right hand of the majesty, who upholds all things by the word of his power, then the way we celebrate Christmas, the flavor of our celebration, ought to be just a little bit different. This is the theme of Hebrews. Christ is better. He's more excellent. So I'm suggesting a better way. Talk about, and it's, it's not all that complicated. Talk about this Jesus in your conversations with your family and friends during this season of what we call Advent or Christmas. That when we speak about Christ, that we don't just leave him in the manger. He's the king. Today, in a more real sense than anyone else is in charge. Pray to this Jesus. As, as we gather around our tables and we pray over the food, which almost all of us will have the opportunity to do in a verbal and express way, that we would talk to him as if he is really this Jesus. That the words and phrases we use to talk about him would be in line with who he really is. And also that we would share this Jesus. That when we talk about the meaning of Christmas, that it's not just the little baby who was also Jesus who came and was born in Bethlehem. And that's ultimately significant. But you've got to finish the story. What we're waiting for, the next big thing, is when Christ returns in power and judges all flesh. And your neighbors and friends have souls that will never die. And if they are not ready for that day, if you are not ready for that day, friend, let today be the day. So I talked about Zoe's favorite song being Joy to the World. And in that song, it has one of the best phrases in any Christmas song. It's really not a Christmas song if you think about it. It's anticipating the second coming. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's the day we wait for. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the season that we get to celebrate and reflect on your mercy and grace in the first coming of our Lord. But I ask that we as your people who are yearning for the second coming and setting our hope in the second coming of our Lord, that we would celebrate and worship you in a way this season that would show our neighbors and our families and our friends, believers and non-believers alike, that we treasure you. That it's not about the benefits or the, the wonderful things we get to do or experience during the season, but it's because we treasure and love and delight in you, that we see you and we love you. Give us strength by your Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see this Christ. And if there is anyone here today who hasn't trusted in this Christ, the real resurrected ruling King of the universe, that they would believe, that they would repent today and believe in Jesus. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, for his sake. Amen.